As a reminder, podcast listeners, we'd like to do a short survey to learn a little bit more about what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward for doing so, we're going to mail you for free your very own special boxes and lines socks while supplies last. All you have to do is go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey. And don't forget to tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks once again for listening. Over and out. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines. The crowd, they seem to love this. At least mm. I'm told that. Today, we're very happy to have as a guest the host of the Jared Dillion Show, Jared Dillion himself, a nationally syndicated radio show on personal finance. And those of you on the street may know him because many of us have read the book before, Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers. Wow, like you've to, really like read up on this guy before you yeah, did your preparation. Yeah. Run it. I I'm said it 10 impressed. times in the shower this morning yeah. before yeah. we did this because um, I'm intimidated by you, John. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'd, we'd like to welcome Jared to the show. We really appreciate you joining the podcast. And I thought we'd, we'd kick it off because, you know, in your history, you worked as a trader, but you also worked at a stock exchange. Obviously, IEX is a stock exchange. So kind of interesting. And what was your experience like? coming up in the industry and maybe touch upon the book or anything and we can just kind of take it from there, please. Yeah, I started in 1999 at the Peacoast. This was before it was ARCA, obviously. Yeah. And uh, it was the Peacoast Options Exchange. I ended up down there because I went to the Career Center. I got my MBA from the University of San Francisco and I went to the Career Center and I looked up a guy who was a trader on the floor and I scheduled a meeting with him. So he gave me a tour of the floor and I stuck around after the tour and basically hustled myself a job nice. uh, on the floor as wow. a clerk. I, I worked as a clerk for about a year, from November of 1999 to November of 2000. I saw the NASDAQ pass 3,000 on the way up, and I saw it pass 3,000 on the way down. I was there for a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, if you pick, I mean, just picture Wall Street, first of all, 20 years ago. Yeah. Different story. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, uh, an open outcry trading floor in San Francisco. I was there for the 3Com Palm spinoff, which was one of the craziest trades yep. of all time. And I was right in the middle of that. I actually wrote, you know, you mentioned Street Freak. I wrote a second book called All the Evil of This World that actually centered around that trade, the 3Com Palm spinoff. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's really, it's, that's actually my favorite book. It's a filthy book. It's really, really dirty. Oh, I, I we'll, have, we'll, we'll appreciate that. We're so we're, we're so going to go right <laughs> out and buy it. <laughs> Let's stop the recording right now. Okay. Nice. So, Did you know, Jared? Uh, maybe you know this, but do you know what the Peacoast is right now? That building because it's a nice building, and I go to San Francisco a couple times a year on business. It's a it's an Equinox gym now. Well, that so a, a lot of people. That's not where the options floor was. That was oh. that's where the, that's where the stock floor was. Oh, okay. So the options floor was around the corner on Montgomery Street in the second floor of I forget the name of the building. It's like the Mills Building or something like oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. But you wouldn't you, you you wouldn't know the options exchange if you walked by it on the street. Thought I had an so. interesting tidbit for you. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> and you also are the host of appropriately named the Jerry Adillion Show, a syndicated radio show. I'm fascinated to know how how that came to be. Ron and I are hoping to become a syndicated uh, TV show, but we have to. I, I blame Did you just our cut market. off his whole life story, John? 
Yeah. <laughs> See, this this is this is why we have to edit. Let's go back to uh, on the 3M trade and then on through. Like, okay. 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 Sorry. So okay. anyway, uh, you know, I I stopped working on the floor about the time I got an offer from Lehman Brothers. I you know I applied to a bunch of banks and yeah. moved out to Lehman in summer of 2001. 9-11 happened a couple of months later, and uh, I ended up trading. I ended up on the equities floor. I traded index arbitrage for three years, uh, which was kind of as the trade was transitioning from manual to computer. Yep. And then I ran the ETF desk for four years from 2005 to 2008, which was absolutely insane. Yeah, that so. was early in the ETF days, right? Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, is that when I started trading on the ETF desk, there were about 300 ETFs. When I finished trading on the ETF, there were about 700 ETFs. Now there's several thousand. Yep. Um, and, but back then, it was interesting because ETFs weren't really used for investment. They were used for trading. And most of the customers that we had were hedge funds. And we're day trading sector ETFs, spies, queues, stuff like that. And that's what that business is like. And the business is totally different nowadays. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And then, so after, after that experience, you wrote the book and then you, you left Wall Street, but you started a, like a newsletter or a radio show. How, how did that all come about? Like, have, have you always been involved in Wall Street since, since back in San Fran till now? Yeah, I have. You know, when I was at Lehman Brothers, I started writing some market commentary that got pretty popular. You know, a lot of a lot of traders will have like a morning note or yeah, something like absolutely. that. Yeah, absolutely. And mine got really, really big. Like it got massive. And oh, I had wow. like thousands of people on my list. And I really wanted to write for a living. So uh, when the bankruptcy happened, uh, I was, you know, I was offered to stay at Barclays, but I quit. And I started the newsletter in 2008. So that's called the Daily Dirt Nap, and oh, okay. I've been doing I've been doing that for twelve years, and it's it's a great business, and I love it, and I'll probably do it until I kick the bucket. Is that what led to the the radio show? The radio show is something I started about two years ago. It's it's really more of a personal finance radio show. You know, I have a yeah. lot of opinions about personal finance and credit cards and debt and stuff like oh, that. Okay. You know, right now we're on eight stations nationwide. Uh, I'm on in Chicago, Erie, Pennsylvania, Portland, Oregon, some other places. And that's live radio. I mean, I'm on every night, Monday through Friday, 6 to 8 p.m. Wow. And, you know, live radio is, you know, I had a podcast. I had a podcast called the Monthly Dirtcast that I did for a couple of years, like 16, 17, 18. And live radio is way harder, way harder, takes a lot more discipline, you know. So it's, it's, it was a big leap to go from doing a podcast to doing live radio. By discipline, is, is it a tongue of like prep work before or discipline and how you, like, do you have callers? Dial in I, and I do have to, I do have callers. I don't get a yeah. lot, and you know you never know how many you're going to get. Yeah, so, so you some nights some nights you get a bunch, and some nights you get none, and then you're giving a two hour speech. So you really have to do a lot of prep work. It's a lot of prep. Interesting. I, I really am serious to know how that came about. Did somebody approach you and say, "I think you'd be great for this radio show," or did you did you know people kind of like in that business and talk to them? How did all that come about? Well, I got I I have a couple of partners in the business, and I sat down with them, and I said, "This was my idea. This was my this is what I wanted to do," and we hired a we hired a consultant in the radio industry, and he went back and he listened to some of my podcasts, and he says, "Yeah, I think this has potential." So then then it was a matter of we have a syndicator, 
So the syndicator's job is to get me on more radio stations and it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a huge amount of capital, but there's ongoing expenses and it's, you know, we're still in startup mode, so it's money losing, you know, but hopefully, you know, hopefully it's not. And sorry, how long have you been doing that now? Uh, I've been on the air for about a year and three months. Wow. So it was a lot of work. Five yeah. days a week, two hours. That, that's a lot of work, John. Yeah. We put a lot yeah, of prep yeah, into no, this podcast. We, we, we wouldn't I know it, it doesn't look it, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really uh, cool. We'll do a radio show one day, John, okay? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Anytime you say. So one of the reasons why we, we had you on the podcast is just like recently, we were sending around uh, our office an article that you'd written on fractional shares. And we yeah. thought that was really interesting because I don't think a lot of people know much about that and just thought... Uh, we we kind of ask you like I obviously know what it is now, but like what 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 does that mean? Would you would you mind talking us through like fractional shares and, and why you wrote about it? And just then recently we actually just circulated this week something else that you wrote on financial transaction tax. So yeah, uh, it, it's it's like six degrees of a Kevin Bacon. It's like two degrees of Jared Dillion. We keep seeing you <laughs> everywhere recently. So yeah, I'd love I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on fractional shares. Yeah, I mean f- fractional shares are you know it's it's kind of a sign of the times. I'll start from the the beginning. I mean, if you yep. go back 30 years ago, you had to trade in a round lot and odd lots were kind of frowned upon. There was sort of a stigma associated with trading a round lot. Just for explanation, when Jared says uh, round lot, that just means a hundred shares. And since people were trading round lots, there were there was an incentive for companies to keep their stock prices within a certain range, you yep. know, around like 40 to 80 bucks or something like that. And a lot of things have happened in the last 30 years. Uh, nobody really does stock splits anymore, except for Apple and Tesla recently, but Amazon still hasn't split their stock. Yeah, And there's a lot of reason to do stock splits that have nothing to do with retail trading. As the price of a stock goes up a lot, then liquidity starts to break down and the stock becomes more difficult to trade. But going back to the round lot, odd lot issue, you know, now there's some stock prices that are so high that people can't buy even a single share. You know, and the what I was the point I was trying to make in the article was that if you cannot buy a share of stock, you should not be buying the stock. Yeah. And you know, Charles Schwab has these things called stock slices, where you can invest five dollars in a stock. If you have five dollars to invest in stock, you should be buying a sandwich. You know, you <laughs> yeah. Not, you should not be buying stock. Yeah. So a lot of it, a lot of it is just sort of the zeitgeist about you know, this incredible bull market we've had and all the retail participation. And I think it's one of just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of signs of kind of a top. So anyway, that's my take on it. So yeah, so a lot of the retail um, interest in these fractional shares is driven by by individual investor interest in these high price stocks, um, you think is sort of driving this. I assume oh, absolutely. institutions are not doing it right. So yeah. Yeah, any general thoughts about this kind of... The, the craze or increase in interest in individual uh, investors, you know, sort of day traders, the Robin, new class of Robinhood traders. And are there any concerns about that? Things that people should look out for? Do you think that that's a healthy development or not? Yeah. You know, if you go back a couple of years ago, Robinhood was the only brokerage that was offering zero commissions. And, you know, it's VC backed and it's a startup so they can run at a loss. And, you know, they did that for a while, but, you know, it sort of forced all the other brokerages to drop the commissions to zero. Zero commissions is a very negative development. It's a, it's a, it's a very negative development because when you have frictionless trading, what it does is it encourages active trading 
And you really want to, you want people to buy and hold. I mean, that's how people make money in the stock market over the long term is buying and holding. So next topic I wanted to touch upon is uh, market making. Obviously, as an exchange and particularly in equities, market making is a key part of the business. You'd said in a recent newsletter that you can't imagine making markets in this environment where liquidity runs from you like a fleeing chicken, which I think is a, is a, it's something actually we, we agree with too. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of give you our stance on that as well. But I was curious uh, why you say that. Why, why is that your impression? Um, back when I was trading in the mid 2000s, there was so much liquidity. There was just massive amounts of liquidity. So if you looked at the S&P 500 futures, the E-minis, yep. and if you looked at the stack, if you looked at the bids and you looked at the offers, I mean, at any given time, there were 2,000 E-minis per quarter tick. There was just massive amounts of liquidity. So, you know, when I would make markets on, say, spies, if somebody would come in to trade, do like a monster trade, like 3 million spies, yep. and I, I could trade that up three cents. And I would hedge with the E-mini futures and I would get filled and there was, it was easy. Yeah, uh, do that you know, today. No, you, yeah, you, you, not you can't. And, and it's, the, what, what's happened is, you know, the liquidity has disappeared for a lot of reasons. And first of all, just, I just want to, I have to make a plug. There's no reason that NASDAQ futures should be trading in quarter ticks. That's insane. Like with the NASDAQ at 10,000, it should be trading in half ticks. It should be trading yep. in points. Yep. It should be trading in points. But we've lost this ability to transfer risk efficiently. And that's, that's kind of a, it's a function of a bunch of things. It's a function of bank capital requirements. It's a function of electronic trading. And this ability to transfer risk has been massively reduced. And I, 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 I think it's bad for the markets. Yeah, no, we, we absolutely agree. And I mean, we, it's, it's funny you, you bring that up because we referenced quite a bit an article in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year where they just basically show, uh, you know, spy liquidity and how it's dried up since like 2008 anyway is where they started on their chart, but it had gone down to like nothing. There's, there's like nothing available. And we, and I think it's, it's not an IEX stance. If you talk to anybody and the market makers in US equities, they'll just say that there's been no innovation if you will, in display trading over the years. So uh, it's something that we're until working Until a with. recent development. Until a recent yes, development. Yes, but yes. but we, we've been working actually with a bunch of market makers and brokers to add some, you know, to, to help people from adverse selection when they display trading. And it's something we're launching called D-Limit. But similar to you, we're, 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 we're curious as to how something like that will work because there's many facets. It's not just like electronic trading and speed, but that, that is a component of what's going on. So I just thought it was, it was a fantastic, like a fleeing chicken. It's just very, very, very <laughs> well, descriptive. And, and, and I'm really interested to get your perspective, having been um, in the markets for a while and having seen a lot of different cycles and a lot of different market developments. We saw in March in particular, with the advent of all of the COVID-related volatility, liquidity, which was already you know, drying up, dry up that much more, institutional trading costs really being jacked up because people were chasing a smaller and smaller pool of available uh, liquidity. And I just wonder, heading into the end of the year with the concerns about a resurgence of COVID, um, concerns about, you know, the election and questions about the legitimacy of the election and, and uh, litigation over that, do you, do you, do you foresee that returning or being even worse? Do you have any, any sense about what's, what's down the road? 
Well, I think it's I think it's going to get worse. You know, we mentioned financial transaction taxes, and yep. I, I think you know New Jersey is trying to implement one uh, sort of unsuccessfully. I think it can't be, really be done at the state level. It has to be done at the federal level. If that happens, it, liquidity will just vanish. Like it'll absolutely, absolutely it, it'll absolutely disappear, and then the ability to transfer risk will be totally impaired. That that to me is a potentially big negative development. And if you look in countries that have implemented a financial transaction tax, some of them have repealed it. You know, Sweden, which is a country that is no stranger to taxes, implemented <laughs> you know implemented a financial transactions tax. Yeah. They repealed it because it was harming liquidity. You know, the United States had the deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world, and our status is that you know just might disappear. Yeah, no, we we of course agree, and I, like I, I can obviously recognize. I'm sure uh, I live in New Jersey, but I'm I'm sure there's reasons why they obviously need more money. But this is this is the wrong way to uh to to find it. I mean, all of this stuff rolls downhill when when you think about the fractions of a penny that people are making on a per trade now, and and how that's gone more skinny and skinny over the years. It can only go down to the institutional investors at some point, and. You know, so, some have said, uh, you know, the exchanges are taking their ball and going home by threatening to move out of the state of New Jersey. But like we know, we run an exchange. It is 100% electronic. Uh, would it be a pain in the ass? Of course, it'd be a pain in the ass. But uh, it's very, uh, very conceivable that the exchanges would just move out of New Jersey anyway. Well, the, co- the costs of doing so are, are very minimal. The margins, at least if you're talking about transaction revenue, are very thin. And so it's very, it certainly is practical to move to a different jurisdiction. Uh, it's, it seems to me it's not an idle threat. Yeah. So yeah. I've heard, I've heard there's some, uh, some physical limitations in terms of latency. And also you, you want to be located in some place that doesn't have nasty weather. Like you wouldn't want to be in South Carolina because we Correct. have here yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah. Right. Like, like even when there was Superstorm Sandy in New Jersey, a lot of people don't know, but, uh, the Equinex data center where most exchanges are co-located were running on like uh, generators for a few days. Yeah. And like they were, they were classified as financial institutions. So I think it went like military hospital, then financial institutions. And still, even then it was touch and go. So yeah, you, you're exactly right because you know, there's many data centers in Florida. I don't think you'll see all these exchanges moving to Florida. And from a latency standpoint, like, not, not that we're threatening to do so, but we could run our exchange in Alaska if we needed to, as long as, to the point you're making there, you would need the other exchanges to be within a certain proximity. And, and everybody and Ronan, would just so uh, New Jersey, I uh, hope you're listening, Ronan will move out of New Jersey. So that will... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, my wife's trying to get me to do so anyway, but I'm yeah, joking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, another, another question we ask a lot, a lot of our guests is, you know, around COVID, like John and I have been home since early March. Uh, I'm not sure in your setup if you're if you're at home anyway, so may, maybe that aspect of your life hasn't changed much. But um, are you hearing things from your readers, from your listeners, just from your friends? Like, what, what's the, what's the feedback you're hearing on like COVID in terms of not not if it's going to resurge or anything like that? We, I mean, and I asked the question from a place where on Wall Street anyway, you've probably seen the press, like a lot of people are being called back to the trading floors. And then there's articles out now that uh, firms are sending people home. I'm just curious what your take is on this whole pandemic. Well, I live in South Carolina. And, you know, South Carolina has had a much more permissive attitude towards the virus. I mean, we did have a big spike in cases there here, but that seems to have subsided. Yeah. Uh, th- things are pretty much normal here. All the restaurants are open. They're open at full capacity. Really, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the restaurants put up plexiglass in between the booths. 
but they're open at full capacity. Everything is open. Uh, the and only it's thing not, that's not spiking anymore. Because I, I remember, like uh, in the summer, it was spiking quite a bit, like in Myrtle Beach area, and that that's interesting because we we still up in New Jersey, New York are very separated. I mean, we just recently in uh, New Jersey allow restaurants twenty five percent capacity. Yeah, I, I saw that. I mean, the yeah. only thing that's uh, that's not open here is the strip clubs. So, ah, well, you know, I, I, there's a joke there somewhere, but I don't dare. Uh. <laughs> so a, a question, and I'm very interested to actually hear your one, but a question we ask all our guests is uh, what their favorite Wall Street movie was. It can be tangentially tied to Wall Street in any way. It can be straight up Wall Street, the movie. Do you, but what, what's your favorite Wall Street movie? My favorite Wall Street movie is this is a you're never going to guess this you're never going to guess this it's it's a movie called 25th hour which was a spike lee movie in 2002 with ed norton and barry pepper and philip seymour hoffman wow and it's 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 an okay movie it's not great in that movie barry pepper is a bond trader and there's a scene with him on a trading floor. And basically what he's doing is he's taking a big position in tenure note futures before an unemployment number. Yeah. And he gets into an argument with his boss, like his boss tells him to cut risk and then he doesn't. And if, if you go back and watch that scene, it's on YouTube. It's one of the most hilariously awful depictions of wall street I've ever (laughs) seen, which makes it my favorite. 25th hour is that what it's called 25th hour definitely the most innovative um answer that we've had i'm I'm gonna check it out on netflix tonight when i get the chance yeah no that is that that's the best one we've gotten we've gotten a lot of straight up wall street so i i i I didn't expect that to get that one from you so 25th hour you you hit it out another thing we do is we we like to present our guests when we have them in our studio not sure when that will be again is a pair of iex socks so we're going to send you your very own pair of iex socks cool i think it's it's the new new tradition in uh fintech right john absolutely it's all the rage everybody is asking for them uh you're no you're nobody if you're not wearing a pair although you're living where the weather's good you probably haven't worn socks in a while In any case, look, we, we appreciate you joining us on the podcast. We try and keep these short. Our, our whole intent was to keep them around 20 minutes for people's commutes. The commutes haven't happened much. So I thought we'd sign off and thank you for joining us. We, we absolutely appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a big supporter of you guys. So I really appreciate you having me on. Cheers. Thanks, man. Well, we're, we're great. And so people, uh, people should be tuned in to the Jared Dillion Show, a uh, nationally syndicated radio show. And one day we will, John. Uh, and one day we'll be there. That's right. You know, we're just going to call in to Jared's show. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, warned. man. We appreciate it. Thank you be very warned. much. All See right. you. Thank Take you. Take care. opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.